0: And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas, gateway to the old west and the most haunted city in the country. Well, <clears throat> today is December 7th, anniversary of Pearl Harbor, which took place uh December 7th, 1941. Over 75 years have passed since the Japanese launched their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And many details of that event are still shrouded in mystery and debate. In spite of that, uh, there have been a few new issues come to light. Um, We'll get to them in a few moments, but we're going to do our history segment first. The, um, it's the 341st day of the year. 24 days remain till the year is over with. My, uh, there we go. In 43 BC, Marcus Tullius Cicero was assassinated in Formia on orders of Marcus Antonius. In five seventy four A.D., Byzantine Emperor Justin the Second, suffering recurring seizures of insanity, adopts his general Tiberius and proclaims him Caesar. Seventeen o three, the Great Storm of seventeen o three, the greatest windstorm ever recorded in the southern part of Great Britain, it makes landfall. Winds gust up to one hundred twenty-five miles per hour. Nine thousand people die. Of course, when I was there, they had their first hurricane. It was funny. All the power went out, to include the battery backups, and all the doors in the hotel swung open. 1724 Tumult of Thorn. Religious unrest is followed by the execution of nine Protestant citizens and the mayor of Thorn by Polish authorities. now to put a stop to the unrest. Just kill everybody. 1732, the Royal Opera House opens at Covent Garden in London. 1776, Gilbert Dumontier, Marquis de Lafayette, arranges to enter the American military as a major general. Not a brigadier, but a major general. 1787, Delaware becomes the first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. 1837, the Battle of the Montgomery's Tavern, the only battle of the April Canada Rebellion, takes place in Toronto. The rebels are defeated before the second round of drinks was bought. 1842 was the first concert of the New York Philharmonic, founded by Urelli Corelli Hill. 1904, comparative field trials began between warships. HMS Spiteful and HMS uh, Piterell, spiteful of the first warship powered solely by fuel oil. Trials led to the obsolescence of coal in ships of the Royal Navy. 1917, World War I, U.S. declares war on Austria-Hungary. 1922, the Parliament of Northern Ireland votes to remain a part of the U.K. and not unify with Southern Ireland. 1930, the W1XAV in Boston. Telecast video from a CBS radio orchestra program, The Fox Trappers. Telecast also includes the first television advertisement in the U.S. for I.J. Fox IJ Furriers. Fox they were also the sponsor of the radio show. 1932, German-born Swiss physicist Albert Einstein is granted an American visa. 1936, Australian cricketer Jack Fingleton becomes the first player to score centuries in four consecutive test innings. Since I'm not a follower of uh, cricket, I have no idea what that means. Apparently it's a good thing. 1941, World War II, attack on Pearl Harbor. The Imperial Japanese Navy carries out a surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet and its defending Army and Marine Air Forces at Pearl Harbor. For Japan's near-simultaneous attacks on Eastern Hemisphere targets, that took place on December 8th. Japanese were very much in the the ascendance at that point in time. 1942, World War II. British commandos conduct Operation Frankton, a raid on shipping at Bordeaux Harbor. 1946, a fire at the Weinkauf Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia kills 119 That's the deadliest hotel fire in U.S. history. 1949, Chinese Civil War. The government of the Republic of China moves from Nanking to Taipei, Taiwan. 1962, Prince Rainier III of Monaco revises the Principality's Constitution, devolving some of his power to advisory and legislative councils. 1963, instant Replay makes its debut during an Army-Navy football game in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 1965, Pope Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras I simultaneously revoked mutual excommunications have been in place since 1054. 1971, the Battle of Salhet is fought between Pakistani military and Mukti Bani The Mukti Baini, for those that are not familiar with it, also known as the Liberation Army, it translates literally as Freedom Fighters, it's also known as the Bangladesh Forces. That was the guerrilla resistance movement consisting of the Bangladesh military, and civilians during the War of Liberation that transformed East Pakistan into Bangladesh in 1971. An earlier name of Mukti Fauj was also used. Also, in 1971, Pakistan President Yahya Khan announces the formation of a coalition government with Narul Amin as Prime Minister and Zufakar Ali Bhutto as Deputy Prime Minister. 1972, Apollo 17. Officially, the last Apollo moon mission is launched. Crew takes the photograph. They became known as the Blue Marble as they leave the Earth. Now there is a story that there was an eighteen, nineteen, and 20th launch, but they were highly classified. 1982, in Texas, Charles Brooks Jr. becomes the first person to be executed by lethal injection in the U.S. Also in 82, the Senior Road Tower collapses in less than 17 seconds. Five workers on the tower are killed, and three workers on the building nearby are injured. Now, that was a guide mast for FM and TV broadcasting. It was 1,971 feet tall, located in an unincorporated northeastern Fort Bend County near Missouri City, Texas. Now, the current Senior Road Towers, built in 83, is a replacement with the original which collapsed December seventh, 1982, during construction. Now, radio stations KKBQ, KTBZ-FM, KKHH, KHMX, KBXX, KILT KILTFM, KLOL, and KRBE all used that road tower, the senior road towers, their primary transmitting facility. It doesn't uh, transmit local TV stations, primarily radio. All righty. 1983, an Iberia Airlines Boeing 727 collides with a Aviaco DC-9 in dense fog while the two airliners are taxiing down the runway at Madrid Barajas Airport. Ninety-three people are killed in the collision. 1987 Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 1771 a British Aerospace 146-200A crashes near Paso Robles, California. Oh, well, uh, 43 people on board are killed. It happened after a disgruntled passenger shoots his ex-boss traveling on the flight, then shoots both pilots and steers the plane into the ground. He, uh... He had in Texas what they call a case of the red ass. Nineteen eighty-eight, a six-point-eight Armenian earthquake shakes the northern part of the country with a maximum M.S.K. intense of ten, which is, <laughs> uh, excuse me, considered devastating. Kills twenty-five to fifty thousand people and injures thirty-one to one hundred and thirty thousand more. 1993, Long Island Railway shooting. Passenger Colin Ferguson murders six people and injures 19 others on the Long Island Railroad in uh, Nassau County, New York. 1995, the Galileo spacecraft arrives at Jupiter. little no more than six years after its launch by space shuttle Atlantis during uh, mission STS-34. 1995, Khabarovsk United Air Group flight 3949 crashes into the Bozousa mountain, kills 98 people. 1995, uh, Air St. Martin, now Air Coribis Beechcraft 1900, crashes near the Haitian commune of Bella Ants, kills 20 people. 2003, the Conservative Party of Canada is officially registered following the merger of the Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. 2005, Ligberto Epizar, a bizarre, passenger on American Airlines Flight 924, who allegedly claimed to have a bomb, is shot and killed by a team of U.S. Federal Air Marshals at Miami International Airport. 2015, the <clears throat> JAXA probe, Ak- uh, Akatsuki, successfully enters orbit around Venus five years after it made its first attempt. <coughs> 2016, Pakistan International Airlines Flight 661, a domestic passenger flight from Citral to Islamabad operated by ATR 42500, crashed near Mavalion. Kills all 47 people on board. A lot of births and deaths on this date in history. Holidays and observances. So Iron forces, Flag Day in India, Christian Feast Day. Amalanius in the Greek Church, Ambrose, Maria Giuseppe Rossello, Sabinus of Spoleto, Eve of the Immaculate Conception, it's Day of the Little Candles, which begins after sunset in Colombia. Flag Base Day in Scientology, National Civil Aviation Day, National Heroes Day in East Timor, National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day in the U.S., and Spatak Remembrance Day in Armenia. Let's see what else we've got. Okay, in 185 A.D., Emperor Lui Yang of China seized the supernova MSH 1552. 1354, Margarita van Bavarian's son Earl Wilhelm v. v. signs a peace treaty. 1703, the first steady stone lighthouse is destroyed in the great storm of 1703. 1741, Elizabeth Petrovna becomes Tsarina of Russia. On this date in 1787, Delaware is the first state to ratify the Constitution. 1808, James Madison elected the fourth U.S. president and George Clinton vice president. 1862, the Battle of Hartsville, Tennessee. Also in 1862, the Battle of Prairie Grove, Arkansas. 1868, Jesse James's gang robs a bank in Gallatin, Missouri. Killed one person. 1875, the Natives' Sons of the West is organized. 1877, Thomas Edison demonstrates his phonograph, also called a gramophone, to the editors of Scientific American. 1895, the Battle at Amba Alagi. The Abyssinians beat the Italian armies. Abyssinians are also known as Ethiopians. And they were using spears and horses against... Uh, what amounted to uh, a modern army and they won 1900 Max Planck in his house at the Grunwald on the outskirts of Berlin discovers the law of black body radiation 1902 Britain and Germany issue an ultimatum to Venezuela demanding that President Cipriano Castro pay claims for damages caused during his takeover of the government in 1899. 1907, Eugene Corey becomes the first referee in a boxing ring. 1907, the first Egyptian Nationalist Congress meets under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal Pasha. 1909, inventor Leo Bekelin Patents the first thermosetting plastic called Bakelite, which sparks the birth of the plastics industry. 1912, the fabled bust of Queen Nefertiti is found in El Amarna in Egypt. 1917, the U.S. becomes the 13th country to declare war on Austria during World War I. Also, that same year, the 42nd Division, known as the Rainbow Division, arrived in France with Colonel Douglas MacArthur among its officers. 1926, the gas refrigerators patented. 1932, the first gyro-stabilized vessel to cross the Atlantic arrives in New York. 1934, the aviator Wiley Post discovers the jet stream. Well, let's see... 1940 the first prototype of the fairly barracuda flies 1941 australian bombers land on timor 1941 the german siege of turbuk ends after eight months 1941 the first Japanese midget sub, number 20, is attacked by a U.S. ship, the USS Ward. This day in 1949, Chiang Kai-shek flees to Taiwan. 1953, on this date, Israel's Prime Minister, also the first Prime Minister of Israel, David ben Gurion retires. 1954 the Japanese government of Yoshida resigns. the uh, 1966 a fire in an army barracks and your turkey killed 68 on this day in 1967 otis redding records his song sitting on the dock of the bay at Stack Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. It's co-written and produced by guitarist Steve Cropper. Nineteen sixty-eight, Richard Dodd returns a library book his great grandfather took out in eighteen twenty-three from University of Cincinnati. On this day in 1962, Philippines First Lady Imelda Marcos. She of a hundred pairs of shoes is stabbed and wounded by an assailant. 1976, UN Security Council endorses Kurt Waldheim, Secretary General, for his second five-year term, in spite of the fact it came out that he was a former Nazi. And on that note, we're going to... uh, Gilder, our main topic. We're going to be talking about some of the mysteries of Pearl Harbor. You know, as I said earlier, 75 years have passed since that surprise attack. And many details remain shrouded in mystery and debate even today. But there have been a few revelations. Now, there's been a long-standing conspiracy theory that claims that President Roosevelt, or his military advisors, knew in advance there was gonna be a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but neglected to act on the warnings for political purposes, of course, in order to force the US to join in the World War II. Now, the accusations are first made public by Roosevelt's political opponents during his campaign for re-election in 1944. But all the ten official inquiries into the events of the attack have failed to um, confirm that. The latest inquiry took place in 1995. Now, there's been a lot of attention focused on a U.S. espionage effort Code named Purple that aimed to decipher Japanese radio communications picked up by U.S. listening stations around the Pacific Ocean. The deciphered messages produced by the Purple machine were code named Magic. By making sense of the Magic messages involved a, a complex and slow process. They were protected by two layers of codes and ciphers that changed every day. And most of these messages need to be translated from Japanese. And although the Purple Program was able to read some Japanese diplomatic communications prior to 1941, researchers have determined that the codes and ciphers used by the Japanese military weren't broken until later in the war. Turns out the Japanese military was rightfully distrustful of the country's foreign office and shared no details of their impending secret attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, one magic communication message did relate to the attack. It was a 14-part message between the Japanese Foreign Office in Tokyo and the Japanese Embassy in Washington. It wasn't intercepted until December 6th, 1941. The message indicated Japan was going to formally break off peace negotiations with the U.S. at 1 o'clock in the afternoon in Washington, D.C. the next day. And that corresponded to dawn in Hawaii. December 7th. Now, several U.S. officials read the message and rightfully determined that that was a strong sign the Japanese were going to attack, but the message didn't say anything more, and at that time the U.S. was expecting Japan to invade Thailand and the British colony of Malaya, which the Japanese did on December the 8th, the day after the Pearl Harbor attack. Now, there were a number of foreign spies who were known to have operated in Hawaii on behalf of the Japanese military prior to the Pearl Harbor attack. Among them was a man by the name of Otto Kuhn, a sleeper agent for Germany's Abwehr Military Intelligence Service. He'd lived for many years in Hawaii with his family before the war. He was actually related to Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who arranged for Kuhn's posting to Hawaii in 1935. His job was to be a spy for the Japanese. Now, Coombe trained his teenage daughter and son to listen for military secrets. His wife was responsible for compiling the information the family gathered for transmittal. And although the Coombs diligently produced many espionage reports for a number of years, they uh, failed to impress their Japanese controller. Historical researchers have said the Coons gathered a little information of real value, and all four members of the family were arrested in February 1942. Um, it happened a few weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Kuhn, his wife, and his daughter were imprisoned for spying, and repatriated to Germany after the war. Now, Japan had its own master spy in Hawaii, a young intelligence officer in the Imperial Japanese Navy named... Takeo Yoshikawa. He worked cover at the Japanese consulate in Honolulu as a junior diplomat. Operated in the name of Tadashi Muramura. Now He was posted in Honolulu in March of '41 and lost no time making a thorough inventory of U.S. naval activity by touring the island in a car and a boat, taking photographs from the hills overlooking the harbor, chatting with taxi drivers, even renting a small plane for air reconnaissance and went diving near the warships in the harbor while breathing through a hollow reed. Now, U.S. counter-spies intercepted and deciphered some of the many messages he sent to Japan, but none of them gave any direct warning of an attack on Pearl Harbor until his last message. Now, this transmission sent December 6th described the position of the U.S. warships in the harbor. Unfortunately, U.S. experts didn't decipher that particular message until after the attack had begun. Many historical researchers highlight two major factors in the success of the Japanese uh, attack in Pearl Harbor. The effectiveness of Japanese torpedoes and the strict secrecy surrounding the movement of the Japanese warships during the attack. Japan went to a great deal of tremble to disguise the movements of its strike force. That strike force consisted of six aircraft carriers, 414 aircraft, and more than 40 other ships and submarines. It left northern Japan under strict radio silence in late November of forty-one. Now, many of the radio operators from the ships were left behind at their bases in Japan, and they continued to send uh, transmissions as if they were on board the ships. This was an effort to fool the U.S. military, which was known to be listening in on Japanese radio communications. Now, At first, the Japanese fleet sailed almost due east, far north of the regular shipping lanes. The force had orders to destroy any commercial ships it encountered that might betray betray the fleet's position, but uh, reportedly only saw a single Japanese ship. Then on December fourth, 1941, the strike force turned southeast toward Hawaii. Finally approached islands from the north. That's where the Japanese spy Takeo Yoshikawa reported few U.S. air patrols were carried out because the seas to the north were thought to be too rough for an attack. Now the Japanese spy Yoshikawa also reported the water in Pearl Harbor wasn't deep enough to use torpedoes. U.S. Navy also thought the same thing, and later U.S. inquiries into the attack found this was one of the reasons that no anti-torpedo nets were installed to protect the largest warships on Pearl Harbor Battleship Row. Now, The Japanese answer to the shallow water was to devise a new type of aerial torpedo that could be dropped from an aircraft into the shallow water without burying itself in the mud on the harbor floor. Now, two wooden fins were added to the torpedo to keep it stable after it dropped from the aircraft. Fins broke off when the torpedo entered the water, where a sophisticated control mechanism prevented the weapon from rolling out of control as it sped toward its target. It operated a few feet below the surface. The Japanese aerial torpedoes, which were nicknamed Thunderfish in the Sky, devastated warships in the harbor, Sinking more vessels than any other weapon used by the attacking aircraft, and that included regular aerial bombs and armor piercing anti ship bombs. At least 13 of the 40 torpedoes launched in the first wave of the Japanese aircraft attacks hit the U.S. battleships, which were then considered the most important warships in the American fleet. Now, the fact that all three U.S. air Craft carriers based at Pearl Harbor were away at sea on the day of the attack. Has, of course, fueled rumors that senior U.S. officials knew in advance about the attack. The claim is they dispatched the carriers on a distant mission to protect them from harm. Now, the fortunate survival of the carriers, USS Lexington, USS Saratoga, and USS Enterprise, was an important boost to U.S. morale in the days after the Pearl Harbor attacks. But historical researchers point out the U.S. Navy did not consider aircraft carriers important until after the Pearl Harbor attack had shown the effectiveness of air attack on other warships. Although aircraft carriers would later dominate the war in the Pacific, in December 1941, the U.S. Navy thought its battleships would be the most important warships in any war to come, as the battleships had been since the First World War. Japanese, for their part, considered the American battleships to be their main target, and thanks to the country spy in Hawaii, Yoshikawa, Japan already knew the U.S. carriers were not in the harbor that day, but that eight battleships would be there. Now after 75 years, efforts continued to identify the remains of a number of the victims of the Japanese attack. More than 2,400 Americans Uh, sailors died. Researchers from the Department of Defense based at Pearl Harbor are trying to uh, establish the identity of hundreds of sailors and Marines from the wreck of the battleship Oklahoma using DNA analysis and dental records. Oklahoma capsized on Pearl Harbor's battleship row more than 400 crew on board that day. That's after the Japanese torpedoes hit the ship. Most of the badly damaged human remains from the Oklahoma were initially mixed and buried in mixed caskets at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu. But researchers have said they hope to eventually identify each individual. So far, the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency has identified 392 distinct sets of DNA in the remains of the Oklahoma, and they've positively identified the remains of more than 60 servicemen Now alongside the the major wartime shipwrecks in Pearl Harbor including those of the battleships Arizona and Utah a number of smaller military wrecks still hold secrets Among them is a, the wreck of a Catalina PBY flying boat in Kanaoai Bay on the northeast side of the main island of Hawaii which Water archaeologists investigated in twenty fifteen. Investigators have tried to identify the wrecked seaplane for a number of years, but so far its identity and that of its crew are not known. Researchers believe it's been des- it was destroyed soon after it took off during a Japanese attack. A remotely operated underwater vehicle or an ROV or a rove has explored the wrecks of two Japanese submarines took part in the attack on Pearl Harbor. Researchers from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration live stream video from the Rove as it explored the wrecks. Now, these subs are among the five Japanese submarines sent to infiltrate Pearl Harbor before the first air attacks. Each was armed with two torpedoes, but all failed in their mission. One of the Japanese subs explored by the Rove was sunk by the USS Ward near the entrance to the harbor. It was rediscovered by divers in 2002. The wreck of the second submarine was found in 1951 before it was raised by U.S. Navy and dumped in deeper waters. Now the damage to U.S. warships by the Japanese raid left a lasting impact on the marine environment of Pearl Harbor. In fact, oil continues to leak from USS Arizona which had taken on nearly 1.5 million gallons of fuel on the day before the attack, in preparation to return to the U.S. mainland that month. Today, the wreck of the Arizona spills more than two gallons of fuel all day. Some scientists have warned of a potential environmental disaster if the half million gallons of fuel remaining in the wreck escapes. National Park Service that administers the wreck of the Arizona as a national monument monitors the fuel spilling from the ship. But thus far, no major efforts have been made to contain the leakage. But the fuel leaking from the ship may not be the greatest environmental threat to the waters of Pearl Harbor. According to the EPA, more than 5 billion gallons of spilled fuel have collected in an underground plume beneath a fuel storage area near the main gate of the Pearl Harbor military base. U.S. Navy said some of that spilled fuel in the And the plume dates back to activities at the base during World War II. The rest comes from fuel spills and leaks that have occurred at the base since that time. Well, there's been a lot of um, attempts made to uh, investigate the a lot of the information that's come to light about the attack we may or may not ever have answers to all the questions Now, at this point, we're going to talk about some non-Pearl Harbor mysteries. For example, what do you think about the idea of living creatures found embedded in solid stone? Science says it can't happen, but the evidence indicates that it has, and more frequently than most people are aware. April 22nd, 1881, Joe Molino was at the 60-foot level of the Wide West Mine near Ruby Hill, Nevada. Drove his pick under the jagged bit of stone that protruded from the side of the tunnel and pulled it loose. As the stone fell, it hit his foot and he was aggravated, he grabbed a sledge and smashed the rock, to smithereens. He was stunned to see a cavity about the size of his fist exposed by that hammer blow filled with white worms of some sort that were alive. Been a number of other instances where living creatures have turned up. You know, sea serpents are customarily relegated to the realm of fantasy, but... Only by those having to examine the records of the, the Mahangahela and her incredible catch. The Monongahela was a ship. Stories reported in the New Bedford morning Mercury for the first time in February of 1853. That was just about a year after the events happened. According to the newspaper, Captain Seabury, a veteran of many voyages, was in command of the sailing vessel, Mongahela, on that particular day, in January 13, 1852. As they were sailing along, the lookout called the captain's attention to something unusual in the water about a half mile off to Port Bow. Now the vessel, the Mongahela was wallowing along slowly in the zephyrs of the Pacific doldrums. And if the creature that had attacked at the lookout's attention was a whale, it would have to be dealt with by the longboats for the Mungahela had, had hardly enough motion to answer her helm. Now Captain Seabury could see little more with his telescope than with the naked eye. He saw that there was a huge living creature of some sort moving slowly in the water, as though in agony. If it was a whale, it was certainly a sick whale. Possibly been harpooned by some other vessel, and escape was now expiring from its ordeal. The captain ordered three longboats dispatched to the scene. He was in the first one himself, standing in the bow as they pulled alongside the creature. Motioning for the other longboats to swing in and attack, he drove the harpoon deep into that huge creature. And as they had done so many times before, the crew would immediately pull for their lives to get their boat out of reach of the enraged creature. Instant later, a huge head ten feet long surged out of the water and lunged at the boats. Two of the boats were capsized immediately. Frightened sailors realized they were dealing with a monster of some type, but they didn't have much time to ponder that aspect. They were busy dodging its convoluted actions and busy busy fishing their fellow crewmen out of the water. And then the creature sounded. That meant it went deep. Seabury leaped out of the way as the heavy lines streaked out of the tub and over the bow, smoking on the rail as it went. And it quickly became evident there wasn't enough line to deal with that creature. So Seabury attached a spare line with only seconds to spare. And that line, too, went over the side as that wounded creature continued to dive. It went down and down until over a thousand feet of line had played out. Then it stopped. It stopped, whether from reaching the bottom or from just being tired, nobody really knew. The Mangahila had crept alongside the the scene as the struggle progressed, and it picked up both the crewmen and the line. And if that thing was still hooked by the harpoon, they couldn't tell. So Seabury wanted the line made fast and rode over to visit Captain uh, Gabbett on the Rebecca Sims that had pulled alongside. Next morning, according to subsequent reports from Captain Gabbett, the Mangahela began taking up the line that ran from her capstan into the deep. They had pulled in only about half that line when the great carcass floated to the surface. It was a massive, monstrous thing, like anything anybody had ever seen. It was longer than the Mangahela itself, which was more than 100 feet from stem to stern. It had a huge body, about 50 feet in diameter. The long neck which was about 10 feet thick, supported a head like that of a gigantic alligator. The teeth were about three, uh, three inches long and looking backward like those of a snake. The body of the creature was a brownish gray with a light stripe about three feet wide running its full length. No fins, no legs. So it was assumed by those present that the creature propelled itself by means of its 15-foot tail. A knobby creation like the back of a sturgeon. Well, now that he had his prize, the captain had to decide what to do with it. He thought about rendering his little whale, but so he ordered it pulled alongside the ship, and the flensing spades were brought out. But they discovered that the creature was just a tough-skinned beast without any blubber. Had his men hack off the huge grizzly head of the monster and the rest of the carcass was set adrift after one of the sailors made a drawing, which all aboard signed. Head was put in a huge pickling vat for preservation. Seabury wrote out a report on the appearance and captured the, the monstrosity and gave it to Captain Gavitt for delivery to New Bedford since the Mongahela was outward bound. Well, the write-up by Captain Seabury did arrive safely and was duly entered into records, but what happened to the Mangahela and her prize was never known. Years later, her name board was found on the shore of Umnak Island out in the Aleutians. But the fate of the vessel itself, like the monster she had inhabited, became just another riddle of the sea. They never did determine what happened to that um, ship. Let's go to Bedford County, Pennsylvania. The village of Pavia. In that little village is a unique stone monument erected by public subscription to the memory of a mystery that has never been solved. Happened the morning of April 24th, 1856. Samuel Cox heard his dog barking excitedly somewhere in the thick forest that surrounded his little cabin in Spruce Hollow. You know, like most country folks, he picked up his shotgun and went to see what the dog had treed. Before he could locate it, though, the dog stopped barking. Well, Sam Cox was gone about an hour and a half when he finally gave up and went back to the clearing where his shack was located. The dog was there. So was his wife. But where were his two sons, George, who was seven, and Joseph, who was five? Father thought the youngsters were at home, and the mother thought they'd gone to the forest with their father. And the dog who knew where they'd gone could only bark and dance about aimlessly. Well, the parents hurried into the dense wood, calling and listening without response. Sammy made his way over the mountains to the home of his nearest neighbors and asked him for help. One of the neighbors set out on horseback to arouse the scattered families for miles around. Others hurried back with Samuel to help him look for his kids. By nightfall, more than a hundred men and women were engaged in the hunt for the two missing boys. Hour after hour, dragged by and the weary searchers came trudging it, empty-headed. Now it was a warm night. There was a fair chance the boys might have survived, provided they hadn't tumbled into one of the deep, swift creeks that cut through the valley. And at daybreak, the search began again. Additional volunteers who'd come in for miles around to lend a hand joined in the search this time. And again, the day passed without a trace of the boys. Time was running out. According to the history of Bedford County, that search went on for ten days. More than a thousand people combed the mountains. Desperation, the parents asked a dowser to try his hand with a forked stick. He found water by that method, so maybe he could find the missing boys. After a gameful effort, he had to give up. The stick twisted and turned, but if it showed the path the boys had taken, it failed to lead to the boys themselves. An old woman who had a local reputation of a sort of... Which offered to try her bag of tricks, but once again, no success. well, in such a climate of excitement, it was probably inevitable the gossips began to run their mouths. Rumors spread the story that the parents themselves had killed the kids in the hope of attracting sympathy and contributions. Busy bodies with more curiosity than sense tore up the floor of the little cabin and dug up the yard around the house, trying to find the bodies. Well, twelve miles from the scene of this frenzied activity, there was a quiet young farmer named Jacob Debert. And he had a dream. In his dream, he was alone in the woods, searching for the children whom he had never seen. And for that matter, he seemed to be a part of the forest. He was in a part of the forest he had never seen before. As well, he dreamed that he stepped up on a fallen tree and there before him lay a dead deer. Leaping over the deer, he went on down the deer trail and found a child's shoe and beyond that a beech tree lying across the stream. Crossing the stream on the fallen tree, he went on over a stony bridge into a ravine through which a small brook ran. And there, in the semicircle formed by the roots of that great birch tree, were the missing boys. Both dead. Well, Jacob told his wife about the dream, but they didn't say anything to anybody else. And the next night he dreamed it again. So finally that he decided to tell Miss Delbert's, uh, Debert's brother, Harrison Weisung, was well acquainted with the area in which the boys had disappeared. Now Weisung, of course, was skeptical, but he didn't say anything. He knew where there was a bridge, a ridge, and the creek and the brook, but he regarded it as a wild goose chase. But to ease his sister's mind, he took Jacob to the edge of the forest, and they began their search. Five minutes later, they stepped on a fallen tree, and there was a dead deer laying on the ground. Eight yards beyond that, they saw a child's shoe. At that point, both men began to run. They crossed a a creek on a fallen beech tree, scrambled up the ridge, Jacob spotted a giant beech tree with a shattered top. and He was too excited to speak. He could only point who, uh, what he had found. And he was right. There at the roots of that tree, they found the bodies of George and Joseph Cox. Both died of exposure, just as Jacob Debert had seen in his dream. Boys were buried at Mount Union Cemetery, May 8th, 1856. On the 50th anniversary of that strange event, a monument paid for by a public subscription was erected near the spot where the bodies had been found. And that monument is still there, a lasting memorial to an unsolved mystery. But speaking of dreams, I have to ask, do you think dreams come true? Whether well, dreams sometimes constitute a preview of the future is a debatable and highly controversial subject? The evidence is there. Unfortunately, agreement's not. Now, science itself has profited greatly from the dreams of great men and of men who became great. Glastonbury Abbey, long lost on Earth as a result of a series of surprisingly vivid dreams. Excavation of the ancient city of Mycenae on the island of Crete was a result of a series of premonitory dreams that changed a wealthy young banker of San Francisco into a a famed archaeologist by the name of Heinrich Sleeman. Those discoveries and the dreams which preceded him are a matter of public record. The quality which they share was still another unexplained and inexplicable archaeological uh, milestone. The translation of the Babylonian tablets from the Temple of Bel. Dr. Hermann Hilpricht. Famous archeologist, University of Pennsylvania, was writing a book entitled "Old Babylonian Inscriptions," and he had the manuscript completed with the exception of two small agate fragments and inscriptions on them. They you were know, apparently finger rings found in the ruins of the temple of Bel near At Nippur, and since they were broken, the inscriptions were incomplete and therefore indecipherable. Well, on the day in question, the hour was late, and Doctor Hilprecht was tired. His wife came in and urged him to stop his struggle with the fragments of inscribed Agate, at least for the time being. But the archaeologist had promised to have the book ready for the printer the next day, and he felt it was imperative to decipher these ancient inscriptions. So, in frustration, his wife gave up and went to bed, and her husband turned again to examining those fragments under magnifying glass until finally he also dozed off. Suddenly, through the magic of dreams, time spun backward. He saw a thin, tall, thin priest of ancient Babylon standing in front of him and smiling. It seemed to be of middle age, and the hot wind from the nearby desert swirled his white robes. In a soft, clear voice, the priest said in English, come with me and I'll help you. Well, Dr. Hilprick got up and followed his visitor and As he did, he noticed he was no longer rising from the chair in which he had dozed off. He was getting up from a huge stone step on which he seemed to have been sitting. He and his visitor strolled through a hot, dusty street, past occasional great buildings, all of which seemed to be deserted. Finally, they came to a building more massive and more impressive than the others, and they went into a vast, dimly lit room. Finally, Dr. Hilprick turned to his companion and said, Where am I? And the visitor responded at Nippur, between the Tigris and Euphrates in the temple of Bel, the father of the gods.
1: Well, the archaeologist
0: glanced around at the details of the immense room in which he stood. There was enough similarity to reconstruction by modern science for him to recognize that the phantom priest was telling him the truth. So, on the off chance he might get an answer, he said, Can you tell me the where the lost treasure room of the temple is located? Well, the priest smiled and motioned for him to follow him. Led the way down a dark hall to the far end of the structure and a small room containing a heavy wooden chest which contained a few scraps of agate. Then the priest turned to Hilprick and said, The two fragments of agate that you've listed as separate articles really belong together. They're part of an inscribed votive cylinder of agate sent by King Kurgalaza to the temple. When the priest ordered to make a pair of earrings for the statue of the god Nim, they had no other agate except the cylinder, so it was cut into three parts. It was done in this very room. Each part bears a portion of the inscription, and one of those parts has been destroyed forever. So Dr. Hilper said, can you tell me the original inscription? Without hesitation, the phantom priest turned and, with his finger, wrote on the dust-covered walls an ancient Sumerian script, the god Nim. Son of Baal, his lord, has Golagalza Pontifex of Baal presented this. Suddenly, Dr. Hilprick was back in his Well, as I said at that point, Dr. Hilprick found himself back in his library in Philadelphia with the white robe priest still standing in front of him. On the paper on the doctor's desk was the single word, Nebuchadnezzar, which two famous Egyptologists had translated to mean, Nebo, protect my work as a mason. The priest pointed to that word and said, nope, it means Nebo, protect my boundary, and then he vanished. The priest and Dr. Hilprick's astounding dream had revealed the true location of the missing treasure room. And he had correctly identified the two agate fragments as part of a single cylinder instead of separate objects. And he corrected the translation of the word Nebuchadnezzar into the form now universally accepted. But the phantom priest failed to explain the greatest mystery of all. How he managed to solve these riddles after 30 centuries... By appearing to Dr. Hilprick in a dream. You know, dreams... Quite often, and there's a long list of cases that support it, seem to project the dreamer into the past. But there are other cases where the dreams also seem to project into the future. And we're going to talk about those tomorrow. But at this point in time, we've come to the end of today's show. So until tomorrow, at this same time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.